you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. So glad to have everyone here. It's always a little awkward being in this space. Um, it always kind of puts us out of sorts. Even me preaching always kind of puts me out of sorts just a little bit. And this morning we have the added blessing of having our children with us today. And um, and I really do mean that. I'm so glad that you're with us. I really am glad the children are with us. So um, adults, make sure to make them feel welcomed. And uh, I'm going to do my best today to honor the fact that... Uh, we have whole families in here, and we're in a weird space, and it's kind of warm in here, even for uh, me up here uh, preaching. So um, we'll try to honor that, but there is a lot to work through today in James. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of do it this way. I'm going to read more than what the lectionary asked me to read today. So we're going to read a much larger portion from the book of James, and that's going to be your first sermon, all right? So uh, we're going to let James preach his sermon. And then after that, I'm going to give a couple of things, just, just some, some of my own reflections on the text. Um, and that'll be the second sermon, and hopefully it'll be just, just a little bit longer than James' sermon, but not too much longer. So James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, this question, asked in a lot of circles, would elicit a certain kind of response, right? Who is wise and understanding among you? Uh, in some circles, that would depend on what uh, level of education one has or on what level of experience one has. Um, James is flipping the script here, though, and he's going to show us another way or, or another uh, concept of what it means to be someone who is wise and understanding. So who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. We're going to continue on into chapter 4. These conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us 
but he gives all the more but he gives all the more grace therefore it says god opposed the proud god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble submit yourselves therefore to god resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to god and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded now this is a tough passage and there's a lot here obviously and we could spend a lot of time parsing all of this Uh, for any of us who've been raised in church for any amount of time uh, you may have picked up on several proof texts that often work their way into sermons Um, this is one of the dangers of wisdom literature is that it can become a very heavily proof text where there's this one little um, idea or this one little prescription that's thrown out there and then all kinds of things are built off of it. And it's so funny because even if you read like the book of Proverbs, um, if you start to do that, if you keep reading long enough, you'll find other Proverbs that actually nuance the proverb which you were like using as a proof text for something else, you know. Uh, So we've probably all heard some of these uh, pieces of this passage. We probably all heard some of these verses used at some time or another. Another difficulty in this passage is that it sounds like it is ripe with dualism, right? With like this, these Gnostic ideas of dualism and, and everything's kind of black and white. And while it may sound like James is talking to us or J- James is taking us into the abyss of dualism or a fundamentalist-like black and white dichotomy, we might want to step back and take a closer look at this text. Because James is offering here, and actually he does throughout the whole book, he's offering something much more nuanced than even Luther could conceive. You know, when we begin this series, we talked about Martin Luther's feelings about the book of James and how he felt it was kind of at odds with the bulk of the gospel as presented by the Apostle Paul. But James is offering something quite nuanced in this letter, and particularly in this passage this morning. You see, the father of the Reformation couldn't help but hear James in dualistic tones because for him, that was kind of the world in which he was operating in. And he felt that James was not in line or was even opposed to the whole of Pauline theology. For Luther, the gospel was about salvation through faith alone and not through works. He saw James as advocating for a works-based salvation that explicitly challenged Paul's prevailing arguments. But here's the problem. You see, for Luther and others who can only hear James in dualistic terms, they are making the mistake of not hearing where James is drawing his observations from. They're not hearing the whole of where these reflections are even coming from. Moreover, they are not paying attention to the things that both Paul and James actually champion because they champion some very similar ideas. In this passage, we see James, like Paul, championing the idea of peace among the body of believers. We see this in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, where Paul himself says, God is a God, of, God, is a God not of disorder, but of peace. Both writers, Paul and James, in their writings call the church to depart from enmity and to engage in unity within the church. 
And here in James 3.17, you could take that verse and lay it side by side with um, some of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. In James 3.17, James says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And Paul, when talking about love in 1 Corinthians 13, says that love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. So we can see that both both authors in the New Testament champion this idea of peace and love and unity among the body of Christ. And in fact, even in the writings, there's some very similar language used from both authors. But let's return to this. uh, Let's return to talking about some of the sources that James is drawing from in his epistle. Some of these we've mentioned already, but I just want to highlight them again because especially one of them is a new one. We want to look at how it affects our reading this morning from the lectionary. In today's reading, uh, James draws from three different uh, Jewish traditions. He draws from the Jewish wisdom tradition. He draws from the Jewish prophetic tradition. And he draws from the Jewish apocalyptic tradition. Now, that's the one that might catch you off guard a little bit, right? Because when you read James, typically, you only hear it as kind of these exhortations to be good and to be kind and to be nice. Um, and, and it does read a lot like the book of Proverbs. It reads a lot like wisdom literature. But here, James is actually employing uh, some things from the Jewish apocalyptic tradition. In particular, one prevailing theme in Jewish apocalyptic literature is that of the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. You'll find this contrasted in several apocalyptic passages. In Revelation, you'll see it uh, several times. You also see it in the Gospel of John a few times where John um, uses apocalyptic language in terms of the gospel, this idea that there is a heavenly wisdom and then there is an earthly wisdom. Now, some of you right now, your brain's triggering again because, again, it sounds like dualism. But that's only if you you don't hear or you don't imagine the breadth and depth of what wisdom meant to James and his Jewish community, right? Because wisdom itself is something that involves integration. Wisdom is the opponent of dualism, right? Wisdom opposes dualism on every front. Wisdom says things are not always either or, but sometimes and many times things are both and. And wisdom knows how to navigate those both and scenarios, right? Like that fundamentalist nature in us wants to make everything either or, black or white, this or that. But wisdom invites us into something different. Wisdom invites us to see things for what they are, to look past the surface and to see deeper. In fact, that's why wisdom literature lots of times employs these very natural images, right? Like a tree and fruit and dirt and soil and rocks. And even in Proverbs, you find like worms and ants and locusts and bugs. It's because it's inviting us to see a thing 
but to see deeper into the thing, right? Not, not to just see things as this or that, that is a tree, that is fruit, that is a bug, but to actually learn from and receive knowledge from and receive understanding from how those things are integrated in a magnificently wonderful and diverse world, right? So wisdom itself is opposed to dualism. So even when we hear heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom, we have to understand what wisdom is. Wisdom is not concerned with the dichotomy of faith or works, but is concerned with the integration of faith and works. Wisdom is concerned with the integration of our thoughts, our will, and our context. And the apocalyptic wisdom tradition assumes that one must be able to see past the facade, past the surface, past the things that can just be easily identified, the low-hanging fruit, if you will. The apocalyptic tradition invites us to look deeper. See, apocalypse means unveiling. It means revealing. It means lifting the curtain off of something that was once hidden, right? Like, Like showing us something we did not know was there before. And that's how apocalyptic literature functions. Um, So James is doing this here. He's making some assumptions about that. He's drawing from those sources. Maybe we don't pick up on it, but James is certainly drawing from that source. Um, But unlike most Jewish apocalyptic literature, James doesn't pit good versus evil here in some sort of a cosmic battle. You find that in some, some ancient Jewish apocalyptic literature. And there's some overtones of that, or excuse me, I should say undertones of that in, in the book of Revelation. Okay, James doesn't really do that here. In fact, when James talks about the struggle between good versus evil, he kind of frames evil as being this very weak, cowardice force. Right? Uh, there's, there's all of this impetus put on the believer um, to trust in God and to, and, and to be humble before God and to submit ourselves to God. But when it comes to the devil, you just got to resist him and he'll flee, right? Uh, so for James, it's not like there's this cosmic struggle, but, but within, his, within, his Christian in, in, within his Christian envisioning of, of, of what the apocalypse uh, is about and, and, and even what Jesus done apocalyptically, we see that the forces of evil and the powers of evil have been, have been rendered and have been shown for what they are, right? And they are weak and helpless in the face of the cross and in the face of this call to like follow Jesus and lay down your life and not participate in, uh, in the cycles of violence and sin and the ways of, of the world. And so this is the way James frames that. It's kind of like uh, the old foot, football adage, the best offense is a good defense, right? Um, that's what James is saying. Just resist. And, and in resisting, your defense becomes an offense. So let's look at our reading today kind of with some of those um, outlying factors uh, in our minds. In our reading today, James encourages us to live a life of wisdom born of gentleness. This is the only place in the entire Bible where that particular phrase is used, in the Old Testament or the New Testament. A wisdom born of gentleness. Now listen, don't hear this just as a call for us to be gentle with one another or to be kind to one another. This text that we read this morning also carries with it language with prophetic force. Verse chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers, right? This, this uh, with an exclamation mark. Adulterers invoking the language from Ezekiel, Hosea, and Jeremiah. 
calling out their infidelity to what they believe. Remember, that is what James is concerned about. He's concerned about what you're doing not lining up with what you're believing and what you're, or what you're claiming to believe, okay? So for James, this is, this is an important, uh, important call out because in the same way that Israel was adulterers in their idolatry and in their not carrying out the covenant or their end of the covenant, he is calling these, uh, calling the, his readers, his listeners, adulterers, and that is in particular those who don't do or act according to what they say they believe. Another one's in chapter uh, four, verse eight. Cleanse your hands, he says, and this sounds like uh, Isaiah, the very first few verses of Isaiah, where Isaiah, ref- uh, where God refuses to listen to the prayers of those who have the blood of violence on their hands. So for James and his community, gentleness to one another is not just for the sake of civility, which is the way in our American culture we often think of gentleness, right? Gentleness is not just for the sake of civility, but for James it is for the sake of upending the devil's plans, (laughs) evil's plans, the plans of wickedness, the plans of the enemy, the plans of if we can use Girardian language, as we're going to talk about Girard later, the plans of the Satan, all right? That it is through this gentleness born of wisdom that we are actually upending the way that evil tries to function and work in our world. It is the antidote, gentleness is the antidote for an environment of chaos, violence, and disorder, which is the kind of environment that the Satan thrives in. James goes on and says, not only does this wisdom of gentleness uh, upend evil's plans, but this wisdom born of gentleness leads to a harvest of righteousness. Now, we always, this word in the Greek is diakosine, uh, we always translate it as uh, righteousness, is often translated as that, but can also be translated as justice, right? In fact, our liberation theologian brothers and sisters will always translate it as justice. Don't know that that's the right step. I think it is righteousness in some context. But just to think about that for a moment, it could be that James is also telling us that the practice of gentleness born of wisdom within the Christian community leads to a harvest of justice which is something that the church is called to pursue, to act on the behalf of others, to advocate for. And so in that way, this idea of a gentleness born of wisdom, not only does it upend evil's plans, but it also leads to a harvest of justice. We can't claim to be people who pursue justice if we do not produce a life ethic that reflects gentleness, purity, Peace, mercy, patience, and other good fruit. In the same way that megaphone evangelism fails to impress outsiders with its lack of embodiment, so does megaphone pursuits of justice. Both can find some endorsement in the New Testament. Both the megaphone evangelist and both the megaphone social justice warrior, if I can use that term. And I, I know, and I hate that term because I think it's a pejorative way to discount some really great things that are happening in the social justice world. So please don't think I'm using it in that way. But we all know those people, right? In the same way that megaphone evangelism and megaphone pursuits of justice lack the embodiment, 
They also can find some endorsement in the New Testament if you look hard enough. But neither is attractive, and neither will bring about real long-term change. More importantly in this passage, though, is James' powerful insight into the nature of our human conflicts. James says that at the root of, of all of our human conflicts, at the root of it, is our own lust and our own desires. Now, for those who are familiar with Rene Girard, you know, Rene Girard talks about medic theory and, and talks about the cycle of mimosas and how, and how that ultimately ends up in scapegoating and how it ultimately ends up in having to blame somebody for us never getting the things we desire. Gerard begins uh, in, his, in his book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. He starts off with this, um, this idea that the Ten Commandments are really built, built from the ground up, not from the top down. So we often think of the Ten Commandments beginning with the most important ones. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, honor the Sabbath, don't have idols, all that kind of stuff. Gerard says no, that the foundation of the Ten is the last one, and everything else is built on top of it. And what is the last one? Thou shalt not covet. Now, when I grew up in church, I always thought coveting was like a special kind of wanting something, right? You know, like coveting was when you really wanted something. You know, when you were like, I would kill somebody to get that, or I would steal that from somebody to get that. But the word there is just the word want. Thou shalt not want. Man, that's a big one, right? Because we live our lives driven lots of times by the things that we want, we work extra jobs to get the things that we want. We go to school to get the things that we want. And even though there's a, there, is a, there is a place for healthy pursuits and healthy desires and healthy goals, this is a very important reminder to us in James and in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that the desires of our hearts have a profound impact on the ethics we choose to embrace and the life we choose to to live you see Rene Girard goes on and he says that Satan is found in our scandals and our scandals are always a result of our internal lust of our own desires of our own greed we want what others want and we want what others have right if you've got kids in school you see it early on in their life right they want what their friends have they want what's popular they want what's being told is cool they want what everybody else wants in fact, that's how you get people to want something. You get enough people wanting something, whether it's good or bad, and everybody will all of a sudden want it. That's why you have crazy fads like, I mean, just to name one, right? Like Pet Rocks. I mean, what in the world was that about? You know, I mean, that was one of the dumbest ideas ever. But because enough people wanted it, everybody wanted it. This is the way that our, this is the way we like to mimic one another in our lust and in our desires. And we live in a culture where the economy is literally based off of this drive, okay? It's really based off of it. You are constantly being convinced that people cooler than you and that have more than you have something and you need to have it too, right? You need to get it because they want it or because they have it, the marketers know that you're going to want it. And that's the way that it works. But what happens when we consistently or constantly going after things we want but are never being satisfied. What we do is we begin to turn and blame others for not getting what we want. They're the reasons we can't have it. They're the reasons our world can't 
be at whatever type of utopian idea we have about our world. This blame and this casting of blame, and James picks up on this here. James, this is what James is articulating to us, that we have these disputes among us because we need someone to blame, someone to scapegoat, someone to argue with to give us meaning in this world where the things we want aren't giving us the meaning that we desire, that we really need to be whole. This wisdom, this kind of wisdom, and it is a kind of wisdom. It is a way of living out what you believe. And if you've bought into the idea that you need to get all the things that you want, then your life then is going to reflect that kind of an ethic. And all of a sudden, standards get a lot lower, don't they, right? Um, I mean, anyone who's even been caught in like some big fraudulent scandal, you know, afterwards they, they have all the best rationale in the world for why they did it, you know. And it's because that, that desire has now affected their life in a way, has given them a certain kind of wisdom. But this kind of wisdom, according to James, is low wisdom. It is natural. It is earthly. And it leads to chaos, and it leads to conflict, and ultimately, it leads to death. But James offers us a new way to think and live in this passage. James says to humble ourselves before God. James even uses this word, which you also find in Proverbs, becoming a friend with God, becoming in relationship with God, that this heavenly kind of wisdom, this kind of wisdom that is lived out of gentleness and humility and sincerity and purity of heart is a way in which we can engage in a friendship with our Creator. James is calling for a radical transformation in the way we live our daily lives. You know, we often don't think about our mundane tasks and what we have to do throughout the day. We often don't think of how those tasks might be done in transformative ways or how, how the doing of them might be transformative. Mark Douglas, um, in his commentary on James, he says that a distinctly Christian vision of the world does not remove us from addressing the commonplace obligations that come with everyday life. For James, being heavenly wise does not mean disconnecting ourselves from the routines of life as if we could sunder ourselves from matters that are now beneath us. Instead, it is a recognizing that Christian wisdom, it, Christian wisdom expresses itself in the routine and mundane matters of li- excuse me in the routine and mundane matters of living in but not of the world this is the beauty of James epistle by the way is that not only is it is it broad in vision not only does it borrow from the prophetic tradition not only does it assert that if you follow a certain ethic you can upend the power and the cycles of evil in our lives and in the world around us. But it gets really personal, right? It gets really into the mundane stuff that we do. A gentleness born of wisdom. Jesus exemplified this time and time again, right? But no more so than he did in taking something as mundane as an evening meal, and turning it into something holy. Taking something as mundane as dinner and serving his betrayer. We talk a lot about the a lot these days about 
building bridges instead of walls. Maybe we also need to imagine what it looks like to open tables rather than close doors. Last week we talked about our words. And many times we use our words to close doors. We use our words to close the argument, to end the debate, to give it that final, this is it, we're right, and you're wrong. We speak more in statements, right? We speak more in commands and declarations. And what we do very little of in our world, and even in the church, and we need to pay attention to this, is ask questions. To invite people in. To open the table for discussion. Even with those who we disagree with. And even those who may be like our betrayer. There are two kinds of wisdom. Heavenly and earthly. One of them feels really great for the moment. But leads to a lifelong struggle in ourselves and with others to find meaning and to find order and to find peace. But there's another kind of wisdom, a wisdom born of gentleness, a heavenly wisdom that when we pursue and when we crave and when we, when we desire to act out that kind of wisdom leads to a community of peacemakers, leads to a community of lovers, leads to a community of reconcilers, leads to a community of hope, and leads to a community of healing. And that's why this morning we're going to receive from the table as a reminder to us that even in this what seems to be mundane task of taking bread and taking from the fruit of the vine, even in this mundane, and we do it every Sunday, and you know there's always been this argument among Protestants that doing it too much makes it mundane. But in many ways, that's the point. In many ways, that's the point. That this thing that we do together on a regular basis is a constant reminder that in the simple things, God is present. And even in the simple things, we can transform our lives and the world around us. Amen? You stand with me this morning and we'll get ready to receive communion. Our musicians can come and get ready. Father God, we thank you for this day you've given us, and we thank you, God, for um, we thank you, God, for this space to worship in. Lord, it's different for us, but God, we're thankful that we have a place to come together and to worship you, and to hear from your word, and to fellowship with one another. And God, we thank you for the table. We thank you that you've invited all of us. We thank you, God, that this is not our table, but that this is your table, Lord. And you have invited us and you have called us, Lord, to share in community with one another. And God, I pray that you will help this community discover what it means to have a gentleness born of wisdom, God. God, let us be evangelists. God, let us fight for social justice. 
But God, help us to do so with a wisdom that comes from above and not a wisdom that comes from below. God, help us to see deeper than just the surface. Help us to see not enemies, not lines, and people on this side or that side, God. But Lord, help us to see one another as fellow humans made in your image, God, and worthy of your love. We thank you, God, that you loved us. We thank you, God, that you're not ashamed of us and that you consider us worthy, Lord. And we thank you for the table and everything that it means, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This time we're going to receive communion. Our service can come. We'll read the invitation together. It's not behind me. It's over here. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.